Well, we're going to jump into the Word of God now. And we're in this series called Made for Miracles. Now, no matter what is going on in your world, in your life, your situation, if you've got a problem, you've got a crisis, you're in the middle of a trial, it's made for a miracle. In 1 Chronicles 16, 11 and following, it says, search for the Lord and His strength continually seek Him. I like that. And what we tend to do is only seek God in the crisis when we need the miracle. But this is an exhortation. Have a heart that just hungers after God. Remember the wonders He has performed, His miracles. So in your crisis, remember the miracles. Because if He's done it once, He can do it again. If He did it for someone else, He can do it for you. And that's one of the biggest things. Oh, God does miracles for others, but what about me? If He did it for somebody else, He can do it for you. The issue is that you need a problem in order to get a miracle because God's not just a performing magician doing tricks to amuse us. C.S. Lewis said that problems and pain are areas we naturally don't like to frequent. And so we actually don't like it when we need a miracle, but we still want them. If you're in a place of pain, if you're in a trial, if you're in a problem situation, it's made for a miracle, whatever your situation is. And I want to take you to a story that I actually love. It's a story out of the Old Testament. It's found, if you want to read it later, and I encourage you to do so, First to Kings 16, but mainly 1 Kings chapter 17. And it takes place in the time of Elijah when Ahab, a really wicked king, is ruling. In fact, it's referred to this way. Now, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord. He took his wife Jezebel, that's a character who comes out later, won't spend time on her today, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And it actually says after that, he did worse than all the kings that had gone before him. And he defied the Lord. And Elijah, God's mouthpiece, God's prophet in that situation, activates the word of God that if you turn away from God, then a drought will come. And a famine breaks out across the whole region. And initially, God provided for Elijah by the brook Kerith. And that's down south a little bit more, east of the the Jordan. And uh, because the situation is, uh, he's announced this thing, people are out to get him, and this is now a safe place. And then the brook dries up, and the ravens that have been sent to feed him stop coming. And Elijah's instinct, as we know later, will be to head south because you know when there's a crisis, go south. But the word of the Lord intervenes in that situation. And the story that unfolds is not so much a story about Elijah. It's actually a story about a widow woman who's in dire, dire need. So in 1 Kings 17 verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him, that's to Elijah, arise. The ravens have stopped bringing food. The brook has dried up. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. He's now going out of Israel into what was then known as Phoenicia to Sidon and dwell there. And listen to these words. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to feed you. 
So as God is speaking to Elijah, God has already spoken to this widow woman who even though she's living in a Gentile area, loves the Lord. But she's caught up in the crisis. She's caught up in this famine. And that's why I stress the story is not so much about Elijah. The story is actually about her, this extraordinary woman of faith who struggles to get there, but she gets there. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, there's the widow woman, just as God had promised. And she's gathering a few sticks And I want to stress again, it's important to note before the conversation between Elijah and this widow woman begins, God's already spoken to her. This is not some mean fat prophet who's been fed by ravens coming along and demanding something. God's spoken to her and now he's going to stir faith in her through the exhortation of Elijah. She's in a world of pain. And she's picking up sticks to make her final meal so her and her son can eat something and then literally she believes she'll die. Let's just touch on the pain that she's in front of. She's caught up in this massive famine that is extended across the whole land. It's not her fault, but she's caught up in it. And I don't want to get melodramatic, but whether we like or not, we're caught up in this COVID thing. And while we've been blessed in Australia, and particularly the ACT, compared to many other parts of the world, there's stuff that affects our lives. We're caught up in this. And many people I know have lost loved ones, been unable to go to funerals, can't travel, can't look after six people. There's all the stuff that has gone on. She's caught up in a similar kind of thing, but far worse. We really know she's a widow woman. And so she's experienced pain and loss and grief and disappointment. And she's lost hope. She can't see a way out. And so she's gathering his sticks to prepare her final meal before she dies. It's interesting that the word Zarephath means a place of smelting or a place of refining. And refining is what brings the best out of us if we place ourselves and our situation in God's hands. I want you to catch that. I hate trials. I hate pressure. But refining that trial, that tribulation, that thing we go through brings the best out of us if we place ourselves in God's hands and our situation. Peter has a lot to say about it. I'm just going to look at one passage, 1 Peter 1.67. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Wow. There's so much in that. But let me just highlight one or two things and go back to this verse and just note it. Trials, Peter says, are temporary. When you're in the middle of it, it feels like it'll never end. But he says trials are temporary. They last for a little while. I'm not saying they were short, short, sometimes it's years, but in the light of eternity, tiny. He says, I know trials are distressing. 
It says you have been grieved in this trial. And the word literally is you've been in pain. You've been in a sense of loss. You've experienced grief. And often in the midst of the trial, it's not a happy place. Even though he's talking about rejoicing. He says the trials are diverse. And if we were to go around this room right now, if we were to do a, a, a thing online and, and ask you questions, everybody would have gone through something different. There may be one or two similarities, but your problem is your problem. Your problem is your problem. And, and it's no good comparing problems because if it's hurting us, it's hurting us. And he says there's various trials, diverse. But trials build faith. He says it tests the genuineness. It produces genuineness in your faith, authenticity in your faith. And he says, trials refine us. It's the way that God tests our faith by fire, just like gold and silver is purified. There's a verse in a book of Malachi that I love so much. It's a little bit scary, but, and it talks, says this, Malachi 3.3, he that is God will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And I want you to catch something. This is talking about an ancient way of refining silver. He sits, the refiner sits and watches the silver in the fire, scraping off the dross. And I want to stress the thing, he sits and watches. He doesn't dump it in the fire and walk away. Sometimes feels like that, has God forgotten me? Because there's an amazing process that takes place. That the minute the silver is purified and the final bit of dross is scraped off, the moment the refiner knows to take it out of the fire is when he can see his reflection perfectly looking back at him in the silver. And that's what God is doing in your life. You're in the fire, but he hasn't walked away. He sits and watches for that moment where he begins to see himself, the transformation that comes by the trial. As much as we don't like it, we come back to this woman and she's living in the realm of possibility. He calls to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And I love her eagerness. eagerness. She immediately goes and as she was going to bring it, he called her and, and bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I've only got a handful of flour and a, a little jar of oil in a jug. And I've gathered a few sticks that I may go and prepare for myself and my son and we may eat and die. There's a few things that I think in her answer, we echo, notice her eagerness to obey. She wants to, she just can't see a way forward. Isn't that where you and I live sometimes? We want to, we just can't see the way forward. She's living in this place, if only. I have no doubt in my mind that there were occasions she was thinking, if only my husband was still alive. He'd know what to do. He'd be able to help. He would make a difference. And she's living in the realm of the possible and it's not enough to sustain her and it's not enough to sustain us living in the realm of what is possible. She says, I only have a little left. I don't have bread, only a little flour, a little oil in a jug. I only got a little. 
And sometimes whether it's our own personal resource or the resource in our circumstance, we go, oh, I only got, got a little, can't do much with this. And we need to learn, in the, learn to live in the place of divine supply. Philippians 4.19, Paul says, My God will supply every, oh, sorry, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And finally she says, I can't. There's not rebellion. It's just, I, I don't know how to do that, Elijah. I don't know how, I've only got this little, if only my husband were here, if only my circumstance were different, I, I can't, I don't know how to obey. She had all the ingredients for the beginning of a miracle because God doesn't need much, but she felt inadequate. And I love Paul's declaration, something I confess of in my own life from time to time, Philippians 4.13. I have strength for all things in Christ who empowers me. I'm ready for anything and equal to anything through him who infuses inner strength into me. I am self-sufficient in Christ's sufficiency. That was the Amplified Bible. You need to read that a few times to just really get it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And next minute she begins to take a leap into the impossible. She lives beyond the limits of what is possible. And Elijah starts off by challenging her to do something she can do. Bring me some water. Her feet are now walking. She's starting to move. There's beginning to be an action. And as she goes, she encourages him, her to step beyond that and bring me a morsel of bread. He doesn't say, I want a three-course meal. He says, I just want a, a little bit of bread that you could hold in your hand. That's all I'm after. And not she's willing, but she'd lost hope. And what Elijah asks her to do is a step of faith. And faith activates the hand of God. Faith does something in strength. When I say, I've only got a little, but I'll put the little in your hands, Jesus. Elijah said to her, do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. Notice, he's not saying give the whole lot to me. He's saying, I need some seed for you, for God to do a miracle. You can eat some of it, but I need a seed that you'll invest back into the kingdom by putting something into Elijah at that time. And he says, firstly, do not fear. It's one of the most common things that God says to human beings. It's the most common thing that he would say to you. Fear not, do, be, do not be afraid. I think it's 367 times in the Bible, somewhere around there. The message is do not be afraid. Fear, somebody said, is the guillotine of faith. Joshua, as he's about to go into the promised land, God says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And that's God's promise to you. That's God's promise to me. That's God's promise to us, no matter what's going on. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Be strong. It requires us, I can do this. I'm going to choose strength and courage that I find in Jesus. So I'm not trying to be self-sufficient, but I'm not going to give way to fear, to being dismayed, to being discouraged because God is with me. So he speaks to fear. He then calls on her secondly to perform an act of faith. 
He says, first give a little morsel to me. And I want to stress this again. He's asking for seed. He's not asking for the whole little bit of flour that's left. He, he says, divide it. Give some to your son. Take some for yourself. But give me just a little bit. And I love it that God always wants us to bring something practical to the majority of the miracles He performs. James puts it this way. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So just sitting around going, I believe, I believe, I believe. Well, that's good. He gets quite rude, James. He says, even the demons believe and they tremble. So just saying, I believe is not enough. He says, I need you to act on your faith. Believe, faith comes first, but then do something that demonstrates your faith. Do something. It's amazing that Jesus referenced this woman in Luke 4:26 and claims her as a believer. Her faith was immature. It was as small as a mustard seed. But because of Elijah's exhortation to move her faith into action, she experiences an extraordinary miracle. James says, I'm reading from the message, the very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. I think you understand basic biology. The very moment you separate the body and the breath, the spirit, you end up with a corpse. Separate faith and works and you get the same thing, a corpse. And he's saying to you, you wonder sometimes, you say I've got faith, but you're not seeing the life of a miracle because you haven't taken a faith action. And what he calls it to do finally is an act of sowing and reaping. That bread used to be seed before and he said, I need some of that seed back so God can do something. In 1 Kings 17, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of flour will not be spent and the jug of oil will not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And I just felt this is such a powerful thing. I know we come into legacy offering and all that, but don't eat the seed that God has put in your hands. You, you can look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 9 and following. It says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In this concept here, God has given you a whole lot of stuff. Always make sure you've got something set aside as seed. So for Linda and I, we bring our tithe and our offering to the Lord, the tithe, the tenth. It's holy unto the Lord. It's a sacred thing. But then we've also got what we call a seed account where we set aside a certain percentage. And when we see a need, when there's an opportunity, we sow seed out of the seed account. And it's just great having that set aside and the things that we've been able to do just by being a little more planned and not eating all the seed saying, no, we've got a seed account. And we have an opportunity with the legacy offering to set aside some of the seed. And again, whatever you can do, be a part of it. It's an incredible thing to do. But the most important thing that we can do is to sow a seed of faith and trust into the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you can't earn your salvation. The Bible says it's of grace and not of works. There's no religious behavior that gets you good enough 
to getting to heaven. And there's people sometimes say, if I just fix up my life, then God will accept me. No, he says, no, forget that. Forget that. Just come as you are, broken, hurting, uncertain, full of questions. It's all right. All I need you to do is to take that step of faith of putting your life into my hands because I've done it all. On the cross, as Jesus died, He said, it is finished, it is complete. And everything for salvation, to bring forgiveness to your life, to bring healing and restoration, to secure eternity for you, was accomplished by Jesus. And then He rose from the dead to be the enforcer of salvation. He rose from to guarantee the minute you put your trust in Him, you will be saved. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 